Good morning. Good to see you this morning. I'm just back from Hume Lake. I went up to Hume Lake and hung out with the guys. We really had a good time. If you've never gone there before, it's such a great experience and we really enjoyed ourselves. And often, you know, when we'll talk about Hume Lake as anything like that, we'll build it up and people wonder, well, does it deliver? And I think most of the time it does. People are pretty excited about, you know, what they come back with and the things that they learn from that experience. And in life, a lot of times we make promises, don't we? I was thinking it's political season, right? And you get a lot of promises. Do you ever hear the saying, there's a chicken in every pot? I offer you a chicken in every pot. It goes back actually to, I think, the Renaissance Day. I remember studying it in high school. I thought it was pretty funny. But that's what people would say. If you put me in power, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a chicken in your pot. I'm going to provide for everybody. Now, how would we say that today? We'd say maybe car in every garage, house for everybody, education for the masses, no taxation. Does anybody ever say that? Now, we shouldn't pick too much on politicians. We say they're dishonest and so forth. But what if they were honest? We probably wouldn't elect them. Because they'd be saying the things we don't necessarily want them to be saying, right? We come to the Bible, and a lot of times we come to it, and we're looking for a book that's going to bring us a lot of comfort and peace and ease. You know, we want an easy life. We want things to be good. So we know Jesus. Now we don't have to worry about anything anymore. But, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches. If that's what you want, you don't want to crack this book open. This book is dangerous once you start reading it. Um, because that's not what it promises. Paul, especially as he gets older, he essentially says, I've got pots with no chickens in them. If you follow me as I follow Christ, it's not always going to be easy. The end is going to be perfect. The end is going to be heaven. But here on earth, there are sacrifices that we need to make. So we've done, it's almost like we've done three series that sort of tie into each other. So we looked at David and we talked about how we need to wait on God and what he wants for us. And then we talked about Titus and we talked about how while we're waiting, we need to prepare. As a church and as people, we need to wait. What does God want us to do as a church? What does he want us to do as people? How do we prepare for that? But today we're going to start a series that talks about finish. Whatever you're doing right now, you need to finish it strong. And most of all, you need to finish your life strong. So Paul is in the notorious Mamertine prison in dungeon-like quarters. And he knows that Emperor Nero is going to execute him. And so he writes his last letter, Paul's second epistle to Timothy, his spiritual son. So kind of heavy. You know, there's a lot of passion here. What would you say if you knew you were going to die and you're at the end of your life? What would your last words be? So we're going to see what his words are. And today in the first chapter, overall, this is all about finishing strong. But the first chapter, he's going to talk about suffering for our faith. Something we don't see as much in our country. But he's going to talk about suffering for your faith. Let's look at the first seven verses to get us started here today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. to Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. 
For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. It's pretty heavy stuff. He's going to talk, first of all, I think the main theme at the beginning here is suffering through separation. He, he does what's pretty basic. He's writing a letter, and in those days when you write a letter, you tell people who you are at the beginning, and, and he just kind of gives a, a common greeting. You know, my name's Paul. Now, we know that Paul was once the persecutor of the church. He was a very evil guy. You know, he was a guy that was sending people to prison that they might be killed. But he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and his life turned dramatically. And so what he says is he says, I am an apostle or I am a messenger of Jesus, not according to my own will, but God intervened in my life, and he dramatically changed me so that I can bring the promise of life, spiritual life to other people. And I'm writing to you, Timothy, my spiritual son. And it's a personal letter, but he's writing in a formal sense, which means it's an open letter for everybody to read, even for us to read today. It was intended for everybody to be read, but it's addressed specifically to one guy, Timothy, this man who's like a spiritual son to him. Then he says what they would do in the Roman world. He says grace, peace, love, you know, all these things to you. But he couches it in a prayer that you might get this from God. I'm praying that you'll have his grace, his peace, his love, these things in your life. And after he says all that, and he's talking about his grace, mercy, and peace is what he specifically says. Uh, and, and, he, and he ties together God the Father with God the Son. So we see the co-equality there. We see him saying that Jesus is, is the unique God-man. And then he does something else that's very typical. He thanks his recipient, and he tells him how much he appreciates him. Paul could be very encouraging. He says to Timothy, he says, I'm thankful to God for you. I'm thankful to God for you. And he ties it back to the Old Testament. He says, my forefathers back in the Old Testament and the Bible, I'd like to think I'm like them. I have a clear conscience. I'm following God. And as I think about God and as I pray, you know what, Timothy, you keep popping up in my head. And every time you pop up in my head, I pray for you. Would you like somebody to say that to you? You know, every time I think about you, lately God's been putting you in my head as I've been praying, and then I pray about you. Night and day, I find I wake up in the night and I think about you and I pray for you. How would that feel for somebody to tell you that? That's what Paul's saying here. He says, but also when I pray about you, I remember our parting, how we were separated and how you had tears. And we say, what a wimpy guy. You know, he falls apart when he says goodbye. In our culture, we don't always understand that. You know, we're so, you know, we're, we're kind of against tears, you know, especially with guys, but... But in most cultures, they weren't. And Timothy's a very sensitive guy. You know, the things we read about him, very sensitive, tender man. And he balances Paul out. Paul's sort of rough and, and maverick and outspoken. And Timothy's just solid, gentle, strong in his own way, but in a sensitive way. And they balance each other out. And he says, I remember when I saw you last, there were at least tears in your eyes if he wasn't crying. And he said, uh, I just, it grabs my heart every time I think of it now. And I, I want to see you again. And I know if I saw you just one more time, how much joy that would bring to me. There's somebody you're separated from right now? Would it bring you a lot of joy to see that person? Can you relate to that? That's what Paul's saying. I, I don't know when I'll see you again. We don't know exactly when this parting took place. But um, it appears that when we, we put all the, you know, the pieces together, Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul wrote him in 1 Timothy, I hope to see you again. 
Paul got out of house arrest in Rome and he probably went and he visited Timothy. And then when he left Timothy, Paul's now like, you know, this is the late 60s. Paul's probably in his late 60s. And Timothy knows Paul's health is probably beginning to fail. And Paul says, by the way, I think I'm going to go to Rome again. And he knows that the persecution is heated up and Timothy's like, you're going, aren't you? If you go, I may never see you again. And Paul says, I know. But Christ compels me to go. And so, so this is their parting, and he, and he remembers this. And then he says, you know what it also reminds me of is this. Your faith is so sincere. I, I so appreciate the sincerity of your faith. Timothy, you're a gentle, sensitive guy, but you are solid. You are real. You are authentic, and I appreciate that about you. You know where you got it from? I think you got it from your mom and your grandma. They were like that too. I so appreciate them. Would your kids say that about you? Would you say that about your parents? My faith came from them. A lot of it, they've been part of that in my life. We don't know a lot about Lois and Eunice, but if we go back to Acts, we, we know this, that Paul and Barnabas went to a little village called Lystra where they all lived. And it was in the province, think state, of Galatia, which is now northeastern Turkey. And they walked through there and they told people about Jesus. And these three people, Lois, Eunice, and little Timothy, all came to know Jesus Christ. We know that Eunice, Lois and Eunice were very devout Jewish ladies. And Eunice was married to a Greek man, but he's nowhere in the picture. And it appears that he's left or died, and she's a single mom. And so Timothy, they're raising him as a Jew, and they're waiting for the Messiah. And Paul and Barnabas say, the Messiah has come. And so they all embrace him. And so then a couple of years pass, and Paul comes back with Silas, and he sees Timothy. And Timothy's now 15, 16 years old, and he's really grown in Christ. And so Paul, in a sense, tests their faith. He goes, to Eunice, he goes to Lois and Eunice, and he says, is it all right if I take Timothy with me as my spiritual son and to begin the journey with me and train him for the future? And you know what they said? They said, no, because he has stomach problems. No, because we have another plans. We have other plans made out for him. No, I think that'd be too hard for all of us to be separated. They said, if that's what God wants, go. Not like today. They couldn't text him, and they couldn't keep in touch on Facebook. They might see him once or two more, one or two more times for the rest of their lives. But they said, if that's what God wants with my son, then take him. And so Paul leaves with Timothy, and, and it's unlikely that they saw him maybe more than once or twice the rest of his life. And so Timothy goes with Paul, and he becomes his spiritual son. And they travel around the empire together, and they come to this town called Ephesus, and it's, it's actually not a town, it's a, it's a city. And it's one of the biggest cities in the empire, and it's located in a central location, and it essentially begins to grow. The church grows, and they start to spin off different campuses, and they need somebody to oversee all that's going on. And they ask Timothy to be that man. And Timothy becomes that guy. And they pray over him. And the leaders of the church, now Timothy's in his early 30s, and they put their hands on him and they pray for him. And that's what Paul's alluding to here. And when they pray for him, Timothy, um, you know, he just, he does the job. And it's obvious that he has the gifts. God will always give you the gifts to do what he calls you to do. And so he calls Timothy to head up this big church. And Timothy does it. And he excels at it. And it becomes the headquarters, the informal headquarters of the Christian church in the early church. And Timothy becomes one of the primary leaders in the church. And Paul says, keep it up. You have spiritual gifts that enabled you to do this. 
Fan them into flame. You know what happens if you don't use your spiritual gifts? Everybody in this room has special gifts and abilities from God. If you don't use them, they become dormant. But if you use them, you can continue to grow in them. So he says, Timothy, keep growing in them. And he says, in Timothy, the times are difficult. There's a lot of persecution going on, I know, because you know where I'm at. Don't be timid. Don't be timid. Be powerful, but do it with love. Be self-disciplined. Don't be rude. Treat people with respect and love, but stand up for what's right. And, and, and hang in there. Now, these are his first charges of Timothy. And the thing that really hits me, though, is this whole idea of separation. You know, it's hard to be separated from people. But when you do what's right, when you follow Christ, sometimes you're separated. And that's sort of countercultural for us. About this time last year, Kirk Calhoun and I uh, went to Berlin. And we visited our missionaries there. And the Millers have three girls between the ages of, I think, like 13 and 19. They were, you're younger then. And, and we were hanging out with them. And I think some of the best time that Kurt and I had was while we were making, you know, making food around the kitchen with them. Or they were making food. We were watching them talking. And then we'd sit around the table and talk. We'd take them out and talk. And at the end of each evening, we'd sit around in the, you know, in the living room there, couches, and just talk. And they were just sharing their lives with us. And they told us how lonely they were for their friends and for their family and for their church but how they knew that God had called them to do what they're doing and how fulfilling it was for them. And we talked to the girls. They, they said that there was this one lady who she adopted one of their girls from a distance, and she would write to one of the girls almost every month or every week or whatever, and she would encourage her. And Emma said how much it meant to her. And then one of the things that really struck us is that each of these girls had embraced the vision of their parents. Each of these girls were willing. They'd seen that their parents had put their, you know, they, they, they were walking their talk, and they saw that this Jesus was real. And it was incredible the maturity that they had for their age. And I thought, you know, so often we think one of the worst things we could do is move at this time with our kids, you know, or take our kids out of this school system, or move them to another country, or ask them to do these things. But what's interesting is so often missionary kids turn out to be better that uh, they're more adopted, more adaptable, and they're more mature uh, socially and spiritually than kids that aren't missionaries. How can that be? They've done it all wrong. They've done everything we've said that we would never do with our kids. But it's because those kids are forced to depend on the living God. And they see it in their parents. And so through separation, they actually grow and become more mature and become better people in a lot of ways. No, no guarantee but isn't that interesting how often that happens? And so there's a good question for us to challenge ourselves with that today. And, and, and that's a good question, which is, who are you separated from? Um, who, who might that be for you? Maybe you're separated from your husband or your dad this weekend. That may not be a bad thing. Let him stay up there a little longer. Hope he's having fun. Uh, separation can be good for a short time. Maybe you're separated from your kids. I was going to use that for college, but then Amy comes with her friends. Great. Thanks, Amy. Couldn't have picked a better week. I was going to talk about separation from your kids that are in college. Um, it, it, could be, it, it could be any number of things. You know, it could be separated from kids. It could be separated from family. It could be separated from a close friend. And think about that, especially if you're 
if you have a friend that's on the mission field or doing work for the Lord. I mean, I have some friends that are far away that I don't see that much because they're serving the Lord. I have a friend in Nigeria, a good buddy of mine from seminary. I haven't seen him for 10 years. And he writes me and he says, they tell me, he, he's, he's a Nigerian, he says, they tell me out in, in America that they have, you pastors have jets. He says, when are you going to get your jet airplane and come visit me? <laughs> so, but, but what do we do? Pray for them. Pray for them night and day. Write them, text them, message them, Skype them. And when you talk to them, tell them how much you appreciate them, how thankful you are for them. Tell them things that you really appreciate about them and try to find ways to encourage them in areas where you know they struggle. That's what Paul just did. That's a great example for us because it is a level of suffering. It's hard to compare it with Paul, but when you're separated from loved ones. And it's a good example and witness for us, and especially true when people are separated for ministry purposes and, and are going through difficult times. Um, the Greenleys, we've been financially supporting them, and they're in Africa right now, and they're going through some pretty hairy things, you know, that go on there sometimes. Uh, he writes back, and we'll have to update you some more lady, later, but we need to be praying for people like that. So the next thing he says, he's going to talk about the gospel itself and how we suffer for the gospel. Let's look at verses 8 through 14. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul, again, has a lot to say here. This time, suffering for the gospel, and he says you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is essentially, he's going to get into it. It's the message that Jesus gives us. It's the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's all about. Shouldn't be ashamed of that, even though right now it's not in vogue. See, in our country, it's, it's hard sometimes because we're getting to a point where people say that, you know, they're not real excited about Christianity and stuff. It's not as popular as it was even 10, 15 years ago or the last generation or whatever. But it still isn't like in other countries. And it isn't a point of persecution where you're almost like, you know, you could get in trouble if you say that you're a Christian. And it was starting to get that way. And so Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of it. Paul says, don't be ashamed of me, even though I'm a prisoner. Do you understand Saul Paul's circumstances? The Mamertine prison was one of the worst known in mankind. I don't even think you could stand up all the way and it was so low. There was vermin, there was refuse, there was a horrible stench. Here's a man in his 60s who's unshaven. He, he, you know, his beard is scraggly and white. His teeth are probably missing. Some of his teeth and others are yellowed. 
Uh, he has his, 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 the chains are around his ankle and they're sore and raw and red. Fingernails long, you know, all that stuff. I mean, this is not the guy that you are excited about. We would not be excited about him in America. He, does, he is not the pastor of a mega church. He's not on television. He's not in the movies. He hasn't written any big books or anything else. This man is in prison for what he believed in. He is ending his life as a failure. And Timothy says, do not, he says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of me. And do not be ashamed of my message. Even though for all outward appearances, we have failed. Did he fail? We're here today because he didn't. But we can't judge a book by its cover. He was doing what was right, and God had long-term plans for him. So he says, don't be ashamed of that. And then, listen to what he says. And this is, maybe more than anything else, this is what grips me in this passage. He says, join me, come join me in suffering. Come join me in suffering. Now, I'm sure he was concerned for his spiritual son not to go through pain and suffering like he was. But what he's saying is, I'm more concerned about how you end your life spiritually than how you end your life physically. I want it to be said that when you die, you die courageously for Christ. Is that what we want most for our children? is the most important thing that we want for our children is, I know you're going to die someday. I don't want you to suffer. But boy, I hope you die well for Jesus. If you have to die for Jesus, I hope you take the stand and you're counted worthy. I hope you're willing to suffer for the Lord. I would never, nothing would make me more proud than that you suffered for the cause of Christ. I mean, that's just like, blows your mind, doesn't it? But that's what he's saying to his spiritual son. And, and that's what we should be saying really to our children, that we're willing that they, they can do that. And then he goes on and, and he talks about it. He says, there's power. And this is why I'm willing for you to die for this and why I want to die. Because there's power in this that will save people's souls. We're talking about saving people's souls for eternity. So he says, there's power there for that. And he, he says, it's nothing you can do on your own. You cannot get there on your They can't get there on their own, Timothy. They can't do it. We couldn't do it. So somebody's got to tell them. They've got to tell them this message. And God has given it by grace. He, he receives you by grace, not by anything that you do. And then he says, it's kind of interesting when he, he comes back here and, and he says, you know, when it happened. We, we think, well, it's kind of interesting how the Old Testament, you ever think how the Old Testament transitions to the New Testament? And it's kind of interesting. God kind of changed his plan. When did God change his plan? When did he think, well, I think I'm going to change it now and have Jesus come? Do you know when he did that? It says here, at the beginning, before any of us were born, before this planet was in existence, at the very beginning, God already knew what he was going to do. And Jesus comes as, a, as a, almost like an epiphany. And that's what the word is, epiphany for appealing, appearing. And he comes to us, and it says he's destroyed death through his death. So we have doctors and researchers and fundraisers who are doing everything they can to feverishly end death. Jesus has already done it. He's already conquered death. And if you know him, your life is like this. You're dead and now you're alive forever, for eternity. And it all happened because he risked it. He gave his own life on our behalf that we can know him. 
And so we realize we can't do this on our own. That's what sin is. We can't get there on our own. Jesus did it for us. And what we need to do is just completely surrender to him and say, whatever you want, man, I, this is just too wonderful. I, I, I'm in. That's it. And we come into a relationship with him. If you've never done that, come and talk to us today because that, that's the best thing you could ever, ever do. And Paul says, the great thing is I've been appointed to, to share this message. And then he says something else is really interesting. He says, and I'm not ashamed of this or anything. You know why? I, it doesn't shake me because I know what I believe in. Does he say that? I know what I believe in. He doesn't say that. It's not like he believes in some kind of empty, you know, mantra, you know, like in other religions where you just keep repeating the same things. And stuff. He, he says, no. He says, it's not what I believed in alone. It's I know. And that's important. What you believe in is extremely important. But what he says is really profound. He says, I know whom I have believed in. I know him. He's here right now with me in the prison cell. I know him. I talk to him every day. I just talk to him about you. I know him. This isn't just something I read in a book. This is something I'm personally experiencing, and I want to pass it on to others, that they can experience what I'm experiencing. Um, and, and, he, and he goes on, he just says, I'm convinced of this, that he, I have entrusted this to him. I've entrusted what I've done in my life. The idea is you entrust a treasure to somebody, and then when you come back from your journey, it's waiting for you, right? So he entrusted to God his ministry. He has entrusted in God his speaking and his preaching and his writing and his counseling and his care for people and his sufferings. And he knows that on that day, on the last day, when he stands before God, he will be rewarded. God will unveil it and say, I've been holding this for you, Paul. Glad you've arrived. Now we're going to celebrate because you've been faithful to what I called you to do. And then he says to Peter, I mean, he says to, to Timothy, he says, pattern. He says, keep the pattern of my sound teaching. Pattern is like a sketch or outline that an architect would do. He's not saying regurgitate what I taught you. He's saying apply to your own lives what you're learning and what God is teaching you personally. It's not, again, like other religions where everything has to be exactly the same. He says, we've got, you know, God works with you in a personal relationship. How is he working with you? Make sure that you follow what the Bible teaches, but apply it to your own life and guard what I've given you with your life. Now I'm giving it to you. I have some I've given to God and some I've given to you. What I've given to you is my message that I've gotten from God. Now hold on to it and take care of it. And you'll need help from the Holy Spirit, but keep teaching it. A couple of interesting things he says here. Do you notice that he keeps talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say all, he doesn't go into a big doctrinal treatise on it, but he, he essentially says that there's one God in three persons. He says it over and over again, and he says it in this passage. Have you wondered how Timothy turned out? You know what happened to Timothy? A few years later, Timothy joined Paul in heaven. Just put it that way. Uh, every evidence that we have is that his life was given and he followed the example of his mentor. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Richard Vermbrand was suffered for Christ, for his faith, for the gospel in the Cold War in Romania. He wrote a classic book called Tortured for Christ. He's famous at a hearing uh, with the U.S. Congress where he took his shirt off to show how his back was just one massive matted scar of whips, you know, from being whipped. 
I had the opportunity to meet him uh, when I was in seminary days. I heard him speak once, and I went and I actually interviewed him briefly. He was sitting down in a chair. He couldn't stand very often, and he had his feet in stocking feet because they would beat his feet all the time. Um, left a profound impression upon me. And I, I got this from his book. I, I was looking through it, and I found this old quote. He was with his wife, Sabina, and they were listening to a Congress that was probably a communist Congress and was saying horrible things about the Lord Jesus. And she said, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They're spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. Wow. That's pretty heavy. Good way to get rid of your husband, too. No, but, you know, have you ever thought about that? I mean, would you be willing to let your spouse go? Would you be willing to let your kid go? I mean, these things are, are mind-blowing, but it's what Paul's talking about. Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Are you willing for your spouse to go to prison for the gospel? Are you willing to? Are you, would you be proud if you heard that your kid got expelled from school for taking a stand for Christ? I mean, isn't that, isn't that kind of wild? It's hard for us to think about, but, but think about it this way. And I, I think we're moving in this direction, you know, maybe more fast than we think. I don't know if it will happen or not. I'm not a prediction. But imagine if the government decided that we were too insensitive and too exclusive and that tax exemption was costing the government too much money and so they decided to confiscate all of our belongings and our churches and close them down. And since the Bible just kept this thing going, they closed the Bible down there because that was the source of the problem. So you weren't allowed to have Bibles or go to church anymore. And if you did, you could end up in prison. How many of us would still find ways to meet together? How many of you in this room would still be here? Uh, we don't know for sure, but I'll help you figure it out, okay? I, this, is, this is a good indication. Are you spending time reading your Bible today on your own? Every day you're reading your Bible, meeting with Jesus? Are you praying throughout the day now? Do you meet regularly? Do you come regularly to church? Like when I say regularly, I don't mean every other month. But, you know, I mean most, most Sundays, you know, two, you know, three times a month at least. Do you come regularly? Are you telling others about Christ? Or are you afraid of that? You know, if, if you're not doing those things now, what's going to happen when the heat comes? We'll find out who's really a believer. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Are you willing to sacrifice? Paul says, come join me in my suffering. Boy, he's not going to get elected. But that's what he says. Now, he closes it off and he talks about uh, suffering out of compassion. Changes a little bit of the direction in verses 15 through 18. He says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Nesiphorus, because he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So Paul, 
you know, he starts off and he's talking about the people from Asia have deserted him. He's not so concerned that he will no longer be able to have Chinese takeout. Okay, because he's not talking about China. There were different Asias through the years. When we talk about Asia, there was a province, like a state, called Asia. And it was basically in the southeastern corner of what is now Turkey. That area was called Asia. Do you know what the capital of Asia was? Ephesus. So these, what he's saying is, the guys from our church, the guys from our hood, our boys, they didn't stay with me, Timothy. You must have heard this by now. They're gone. Now, he's probably using hyperbole because he does, Anesophorus was from Ephesus. So he's not, you know, he's just saying, it seems like everybody left me from them. Just, they, just like a mass exodus. Only maybe Anesophorus was the only guy that hung with me. What's going on here? Uh, sometimes, you know, we look to the Bible for names for our children. And if you're thinking about Figilus or Hermogenes, I would say no, because these were bad guys. Anesophorus, not so bad. Anesophorus is a good guy. You could call him Oni, especially if he was an Oni child. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I just had to say that. But, but Anesophorus was a good guy, Right? What's so good about him? He lived in Ephesus, but he traveled all the way to Rome to visit Paul. Anesiphorus wasn't a pastor. Anesiphorus wasn't a missionary. There's nothing about Anesiphorus. We don't know anything about him. He was just a regular guy, just anybody off the radar, and yet he goes and he encourages Paul. And that wasn't easy. Rome was massive. He had to find the Mamertine prison, and it, was, it stunk. It was dirty, it was scary, and by going there, he identified with Paul, which put him in risk of going to prison himself. And he went. And when he went, he was like a ray of sunshine that lit up that, the prison cell, and he brought encouragement to his pastor and his friend. And Paul was just so overwhelmed that he prayed that when he gets before God, that he just trusts that God will bless him in incredible ways because of what a good man he is. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Jesus says that. We'll be surprised when we get in heaven. Some of the people who will be on the highest realms of leadership and so forth, there'll be people that we thought, well, they were just regular people. Well, no. They were people that were faithful people and did what God wanted, and they, they received their just rewards. And Anesiphorus was one of those guys. Great example. Do you have Anesiphorus? Here's a, here's a question for you. Have you ever suffered? I mean, really suffered? I would suspect that there's a number of people in this room that have. Now, I don't think there's anybody here that's been in prison for Christ. I find that very hard to believe in this crowd. But, you know, you say, well, how would I do if I was under persecution? Well, here's one way to look at it, is how have you done when you were under severe suffering? What was the most intense suffering you've ever been through? And, and how did you deal with that? You know, I think of my own life, and I think of um, the hardest time was seven and a half years of my life when my children both had catastrophic illnesses. And at the end of that time, my son passed away because of leukemia. That was by far the hardest time of my life. And God raised up for me, as he has in the past, but, but one guy who was in Anessa Forest during that time. His name was Don, and he came and visited me a couple weeks ago here. Some of you met him. And Don and I were about as opposite as can be in terms of our backgrounds and so forth. But God brought him into my life. I was a pastor. He was a relatively new Christian in the church, but his heart went out 
to my son Kyle. Don was a carpenter and he worked by the hospital and every day he would come by and visit my son to give me a chance to rest. And he just kept doing that. And then when the kids came home, he'd come over and he'd rile the kids all up. He'd get them. My, my daughter still adores him. They would get so excited when he'd come over that we'd have to say, maybe it's time to go now because these kids are out of control. Um, and my wife just loves Don. They have a great relationship and they talk about all sorts of things and recipes. For, he loved to do carne asada meals and stuff. And, just, and, and we'd go over to their house for Thanksgiving and we'd go to the beach together and hang out with them and do events and work projects. And then when it became clear that my son wasn't going to make it, we were um, advised that while our minds were still clear to go to the mortuary and make plans, but to bring a friend with you that could help you get through this time. Well, I didn't question who I asked. I, I said, Don, can you do this? He took off work, I believe, to be by my side at that difficult time. And, you know, after Kyle passed, Don was still there. And he came up to, for my daughter's you know, graduation. When I go to San Diego, I see him. When he comes up here, I see him, and, and, and he's just always been there. We talk on the phone. I think I've helped him some. I know he's helped me tons. We both started giving platelets after my boy died, and then we'd get passes to the San Diego Padres game, and we'd go to the Padres games together and have fun. So there's just, just a whole history there, but, but he was my Anessa Forrest during that time in my life. What I want to ask you is, is, is who's your Anessa Forrest? Who's the person who takes care of you with nothing to gain? Because when you go through hard times, most people bail. Who's the person that will stay by your side regardless? Sometimes it'll surprise you. Don surprised me, frankly. I didn't realize we were going to become such close friends. And who are you in Anessa Forest too? Who are you in Anessa Forest too? You know, um, <laughs> years ago when I was... In World War II, there was this wiggly road called Burma Road. Anybody ever heard about Burma Road? It was in what well, was then the nation of Burma. And up above, you could see it would just wiggle like this. And it was dangerous because there were gorillas on the land, and there were snipers in the trees, and there were aircraft overhead, and it was just really hard to get through Burma Road and get, you know, get your supplies through Burma Road. So my football coaches got real creative, as they, they do sometimes. And they said anytime somebody was tardy, uh, if they missed a practice or some other indiscretion, they went through Burma Road. And Burma Road for us is we created a gauntlet of players, and they would all line up, and there were like 40 guys, and then the guy would go through, and each guy got to hit him. Each guy hit him until he was done, and he learned his lesson. And that's what we did. And they usually started off pretty well, and at the end they didn't do so well. Uh, a couple broken bones, not for sure it would fly today, but we did Burma Road. And there was one guy who went through it three times. And so we nicknamed him Burma, and he became a legend. Uh, his name was Frank Rose, Frank Bremer Rose, and uh, he, was, he had a locker right next to me. He was an undersized lineman of uh, African-American descent, and he used to get bussed in from the ghetto, which is probably why he was tardy. I was thinking about that the other day. Gosh, the guy was probably tardy because the bus was late, you know? Um, but he had a good, great sense of humor, really dry humor, and he became one of my best friends on the team. He didn't play very much, but man, I don't know anybody that was tougher pound for pound than Bremer Rose. He would give it all for his teammates and for football. And, and, and he inspired me even as a person and as an athlete. Isn't it amazing, though, that we will give it all for those kinds of things? But see, part of it for him is he, he loved people. He was giving it for people. Well, shouldn't we want to see people come to know Christ? Shouldn't we want to be giving it all for him? I got to thinking that in many ways, our lives are like Burma Road. There are snipers all around. There are demons all around. There are landmines all around. And we got to get through it to the end, to heaven. 
just like my football team. There is no way you will get through unscathed. You will suffer on the way. But if you do the best you can under God's guidance, you know what we always did at the end of Burma Road? We'd celebrate. He made it through. And we'd all tell him how much we appreciated him and pat him on the back. We're going to celebrate in heaven one day based on your faithfulness. You won't get through unscathed, but even those scars will be something to rejoice in one day. So I continue to, I just encourage you to fight to the finish. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, some pretty heavy stuff today that Paul lays on us. Um, But I think hopefully encouraging too that uh, you haven't called us. It's not like we should go out and look for suffering, but suffering of different things come in our lives. Are we prepared? Will we willingly suffer along with you that we might, even during difficult times, be a witness to those that don't know you, that they might come to know you and live with you for eternity. I pray that you'd give us the courage to do that, and I pray that if there's anybody that doesn't know you, that they would come to know you this very day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.